Welcome to the Absite Smackdown podcast. We'll talk clinical scenarios, Absite facts, and interesting general surgery knowledge. Now, let's get to it. All right, guys, my name is Colton Lee, and I'm going to be covering small bowel. Uh, it's a pretty short chapter, but there's some relevant clinical points in it. Uh, this PowerPoint that I'll be presenting is pretty much an, an amalgamation of facts, uh, some of them more pertinent than others. Um, but all important for the abscite purposes. So we'll just kind of delve into it with a little bit of an uh, embryology and anatomy. So the small bowel first appears during the fourth week of gestation. gestation excuse me. Uh, the duodenum is formed from the junction of the foregut and midgut with recannulization, the jejunum and proximal portion of the ilium from the proximal limb of the midgut loop, and the distal ilium from the caudal loop limb of the midgut loop. Around week 11, the midgut loop rotates 270 degrees counterclockwise around the superior mesenteric artery. And this is illustrated in the image that you can see on the side of the PowerPoint slide. Uh, this becomes clinically relevant whenever we talk about uh, patients that have uh, volvulus or that have um, phallocele or um, malrotation because the bowel is not rotated uh, counterclockwise. And that's actually the direction you have to rotate it whenever you do the surgery. Next slide. There are several layers to the small bowel. Um, the most outer layer is the serosa or adventitia. This is what you see with your eyes whenever you're looking at the bowel. Uh, below that, you have your muscularis propria, which consists of your longitudinal muscle, then your arabac or myanteric plexus, and then your circular muscle. Below that is your submucosa or the mycenaries or submucosal plexus. And then the innermost layer is the mucosa, which consists of the epithelium, the lamina propria, and the muscularis mucosa. As I mentioned before, the submucosa includes blood vessels, lymphatics, and the myantric Meissner's plexus. These uh, nerve plexuses become relevant whenever you talk about disease processes such as uh, Hirschsprung's disease, uh, which obviously affects the large bowel and the rectum, um, but it, the actual nerves migrate proximal to distal in the bowel, so um, these kind of become cl relevant clinically. Next slide. There are lymph aggregates called pyrus patches. These are most prevalent in the ileum. Um, these are actually the most common cause of appendicitis uh, in children, uh, not so much in adults. Um, there are Brunner's glands at the duodenum, which produce alkaline secretions that protect the acidic against the acidic gastrochyme. And then whenever we talk about, about the muscularis, as I previously mentioned, the inner layer, layer is the more circular muscle and the outer layer is longitudinal layers. Uh, these include the plexuses that we previously mentioned as well. Next slide. Now, whenever we break up the bowel into different sections, the duodenum is the first 20 centimeters of the small bowel, um, and it terminates at the ligament atrites. There's no necessarily anatomic definition between duodenum and jejunum other than the ligament itself, um, or no anatomic boundary. However, that's usually how we identify it. Um, as mentioned before, the external layer of the bowel is the serosa, and this is a single layer of mesoepithelial cells. Next slide. There are no anatomic boundaries present between the jejunum and the ileum, uh, but the first 40% uh, of the small bowel after the ligament atrites is the jejunum and the distal 60% is the ileum. You can identify the jejunum by the greater circumference uh, and then the longer vasa recta with fewer like one to two arcades of the jejunum. The plicus circularis are greater in number and longer than jejunum as well. And you can see those in this image that we have to the side. The metabolic absorption sites will become more important a little bit later in the PowerPoint. Next slide.
There are a bunch of different types of cells uh, in the small bowel. The most important, arguably, are the enterocytes. These specialize in absorption of dietary nutrients as well as digestion. Greater than 90% of the epithelial cells are actually enterocytes, and they arise within the crypts of Libricune. They migrate to the villite tips. There are panis cells as well, which are found at the base of the crypts of Libricune. They have many functions, including defending the mucosa, phagocytosis, regulating the flora in the intestine, and secretion of peptides with antimicrobial properties. Next slide. The Absite Smackdown podcast now has a live review. Get your access for the only review conference that works best with your schedule. On call, can't travel, no time for an expensive hotel room or plane ticket. We've got you covered. Visit AbsiteSmackdown.com and select latest news to learn more and sign up today. There are M cells as well. These are microfold cells. They function in antigen pre- presentation and they are located above the pyrus patches. We have goblet cells which secrete mucus, 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 mucus excuse me, and then enteroendocrine cells which produce and secrete hormones. Uh, there are several uh, gastric hormones that are imp- important. Uh, I'll kind of list them off and kind of tell you a little bit about their purposes. The first is secretin, which stimulates the flow and alkalinity of bile and water or bicarbonate from the pancreatic ductal cells. This inhibits gastrin release and gastric acid secretion as well as motility. These are stimulated by bile salts, fatty acids, and luminal acid. Next is motilin. This is the most important hormone in the migrating motor complex, which we'll cover shortly. It's released from cells in duodenum and jejunum and stimulated by gastric distension as well as fat. Somatostatin, which is released by D-cells, is the universal off switch. It's stimulated by amino acids, CCK, glucose in the pancreas, as well as acid, fat, proteins, gastric, CCK, and uh, the gut as well. Closest to kinin is produced by I-cells. This stimulates gallbladder contraction, relaxes the sphincter of ODI, stimulates the pancreatic enzyme secretion, slows gastric emptying. This is released by cells in the duodenum and jejunum, stimulated by amino acids, peptides, and fats. There is peptide YY, which inhibits gastric and pancreatic secretion as well as gallbladder contraction. It's released by cells in the distal small bowel and colon and stimulated by CCK and fatty acids. Enterochromaffin cells, uh, release, uh, which are APUD cells, release a carcinoid precursor. There is glucagon light peptide 2 or GLP2. This is a potent enterotrophic factor released by L cells in the small bowel. It's stimulated by glucose and fat. There's also gastric inhibitory polypeptide, or GIP, which stimulates pancreatic insulin release and inhibits gastric acid and pepsin secretion. This is stimulated by glucose, fat, protein, and adrenergic stimulation. Now, those get really easy to mix up, so I recommend making a chart or consulting your uh, text in order to kind of tell the difference in those because they become relevant in some clinical questions. Next slide. So whenever we talk about carcinoid tumors, um, you always get a question on the biochemical pathway, which is tryptophan, which then becomes serotonin, and then 5-HIAA. Uh, this is measured in the urine as clinical cor- corollary. Tryptophan diversion may cause pellagra, which is identif- identified by the four Ds, diarrhea, dermatitis, dementia, and death. Most common sites and frequency of lowest to highest for carcinoid tumors, um, the mnemonic error is very helpful. Uh, 50% of them are in the appendix, followed by the ileum and rectum. Carcinoid uh, that involves the appendix, uh, if you have a carcinoid that is greater than 2 centimeters or involves the base, 
then you have to perform a right hemicolectomy. If it is less than two centimeters and does not involve the base, then appendectomy alone is okay. Serotonin is secreted by Kolchitsky cells, which are endochromophin cells. These cells stain positive with argentafin. Only approximately 9% of patients with metastatic disease get carcinoid syndrome, which is identified by flushing, asthma, diarrhea, right-sided heart valve lesions, or disease. And then octreotide helps relieve the symptoms. One-third of patients with small bowel carcinoid have multiple primary sites. One-fourth have metachronous lesions. Um, the treatment for carcinoid is streptozocin, doxorubicin, and 5-FU. However, this is more palliative in nature um, and for higher um, higher class uh, actual lesions themselves. Next slide. The uh, NG2 that you see at the bottom of the slide is kind of a harbinger of small bowel obstruction. Uh, the first line treatment of small bowel obstruction, assuming it's not a closed loop obstruction, um, is bowel rest of the NG tube. This cures 65% of partial SBOs, and this is actually quoted up to 80% uh, in some texts, and 20% of complete SBOs. The terminal ileum, if you resect it, uh, there are several different possible sequelae, and we talk about this more so when we start getting into Crohn's disease. However, one of the penultimate things is that you have decreased bile salt absorption, which leads to less colonic water absorption. This causes diarrhea, which can result in a decreased B12 and intrinsic factor absorption. You have decreased binding of oxalate, and then more oxalate absorbed in the colon, which releases more oxalate stones into the urinary system. Uh, you can also have decreased absorption of fat-soluble um, vitamins, vitamins K, A, D, and E. Next slide. Again, we'll have kind of just an amalgamation of facts about the small bowel. Um, when we start talking about small bowel fistulas, obviously proximal ones are a lot more higher output than distal ones. And then when we start talking about colonic, Fistulas, they're a lot more likely to spontaneously resolve. Fistulas have a decreased healing rate in presence of uh, the mnemonic friends. This is foreign body radiation, inflammatory bowel disease, epithelialization, neoplasm, distal obstruction, and then sepsis or infection. TPN has been proven to increase the closure rate of fistulas, but is not shown to increase overall survival. If you have a patient with Crohn's, this is the patient you'll talk about fistulas with. Um, if you have a patient that has numerous strictures. Uh, you want to avoid resection and subsequently short gut, which we'll talk about shortly, and perform strictureoplasties in those situations. Strictureoplasty is not a good option for an initial surgery on a patient with Crohn's unless they have multiple, um, multiple strictures uh, because you're leaving diseased uh, intestine behind. If you have a SBO due to gallstone from a cholecystoenteric fistula or gallstone ileus, You'll have an SBO with air in the biliary tree. This is uh, exhibited on the x-ray that's shown. As I said, this is known as a gallstone ileus, and the fistula is usually to the second portion of the duodenum. The treatment for this is to remove the stone to relieve the SBO, but you often want to leave the gallbladder if the patient's ill uh, to decrease mortality because taking down the fistula can cause a lot of issues. Uh, whenever you do the surgery, you also want to run the bowel to look for any other gallstones. Next Now, when we talk about absorption sites, as I mentioned, the enterocytes are the primary absorptive uh, cell. Uh, so 
Whenever there's a good mnemonic that is, dude is just feeling ill, bro. So the duodenum is primary absorption site for iron, jejunum, folate, and then the ileum is B12. Bile acids occur mostly in the ileum, as I mentioned before, iron in the duodenum, folate in the jejunum. Um, all other um, things are going to be absorbed mostly in the jejunum. The arterial supply to the small bowel is via the SMA. This enters on the mesenteric side of the jejunum and ileum. Therefore, the anti-mesenteric side is the initial area to become more ischemic when blood supply is decreased or there's poor diffuse CO or diffused O2, such as in a setting of embolus or sepsis. Next slide. So 90% of the water is actually absorbed in the jejunum throughout the bowel. We think of it in the colon, however, water is absorbed in the colon and that's the primary purpose of the colon, but more so water is absorbed in the jejunum. The celiac access supplies the foregut and portions of the duodenum. And note that the SMA supplies a portion of the duodenum and SMA is the supply to the jejunum. There are a couple different causes of bowel obstruction, uh, more so in patients that have history of previous surgery, you're going to think about adhesions uh, in small bowel. But if you have large bowel obstruction, it's going to be cancer. Causes of bowel obstruction without a history of previous surgery, it's going to be most commonly a hernia in small bowel. And again, cancer if it's in the large bowel. Next slide. So the characteristics of macronutrient absorption in the jejunum, the jejunum absorbs carbs, uh, fructose is by facilitated diffusion, galactose and glucose is by active. Proteins are absorbed by active transport and fat is by passive transport. The most common tumor to metastasize to the small bowel is a melanoma. And we start talking about blind lupus syndrome. This is caused by bacterial overgrowth, which causes B12 consumption, typically in a patient that's had... Um, weight loss surgery with a ruin Y. Uh, the treatment on here, it says uh, tetracycline and augmentin. However, more recently, uh, this has been changed to rifamixin as well as tetracycline. Next slide. GIS or gastrointestinal stromal tumor. This is caused by a mutation in the CKIT gene, which produces tyrosine kinase. It's a mesenchymal tumor, typically presents as a GI bleed. Treatment is with the tyrosine kinase inhibitor Gleevec or amentinib and resection with negative margins by frozen section. If you have a patient that presents with appendicitis and you find them to have suspected Crohn's, you're going to want to leave active Crohn's alone in the operating room. If the appendix is not involved in the Crohn's, you can actually do an appendectomy at that time so that there's no clinical confusion in the future. And if the appendix is involved in the Crohn's, you don't want to remove it owing to the chance of complication. Next slide. Terminal ileum disease and Crohn's disease leads to inability to reabsorb bile into the intrahepatic circulation. We've already kind of touched on this. Therefore, free cholesterol turns into stones in the gallbladder of the Crohn's patients. This is another side effect of that. Whenever we talk about the enterocytes of the small bowel, their primary fuel source is glutamine. Um, this is a, occasionally a... Um, occasionally, your body's able to make glutamine, but in times of stress, you're not able to make it. So you have to absorb it from the environment. Normal intracyte li lives for a little more than two days. There's their commoner and the principal cells of the villi. They're found in the mucosa of the small and large bowel, and they absorb a variety of nutrients, including calcium, iron, and water. Approximately 80% of ingested vitamin K is absorbed from the small bowel. Next slide. 
The Absite Smackdown podcast is based on the best-selling review book, Absite Smackdown. The only Absite review with an entire video review course included. Visit AbsiteSmackdown.com and pick it up today. The celiac trunk. Uh, so the arterial supply of the duodenum, the main blood supply to the duodenum is from the superior and inferior pancreaticoduodenal arteries. These are branches of the gastroduodenal and superior mesenteric arteries, respectively, and they form an anterior and posterior arcade. The proximal half of the duodenum is supplied by the superior pancreaticoduodenal artery and the distal half by the inferior pancreaticoduodenal artery. Superior part of the duodenum may also be supplied from the superduodenal artery arising from the common hepatic or gastroduodenal, the right gastric artery, the right gastroepiploic artery, the gastroduodenal artery. These vessels are often anastomosed with each other. Next slide. The migratory motor complex, this often comes up on the outside. Uh, it's actually seen during fasting. There are four different phases of it, and this is just contractility of the small bowel at times of rest. Phase one has little or no contractile activity or electric spikes. Phase two has intermittent spike activity and intermittent smooth muscle contraction. Phase three shows maximum spike activity on every slow wave. There are regular strong contractile activity seen, and this is where motilin, motilin actually acts. Phase four is a period of intermittent spike activity. It's very brief. This serves as a transition phase between the phase of regular contractile activity and the quiescent phase. The duration of an entire cycle is approximately 90 to 120 minutes, and then each phase starts in the distal esophagus, stomach, and duodenum and migrates down the small intestine. As I mentioned before, they're only present in the fasted state, and they have no apparent role in the mixing or propulsion of ingested meals. Next slide. Their function may be to clear the small bowel of residual food, secretion, and desquamated cells during times between meals or interdigestive states. The MMC may also serve to limit the overgrowth of bacteria in the distal small bowel. Phase three of the MMC includes increased secretion of pepsin, increased secretion of hydrochloric acid by the stomach, and increased secretion of amylase and bicarbonate by the pancreas. There's also increased duodenal output of bile acid and bilirubin during phase two of the MMC. Switching gears a little bit, um, adult intussusception is another pathologic process and often has a malignant lead point. Whenever that you start talking about the different pieces of bile, the intussusceptions, is a part of bowel that is the recipient of another piece. And the other piece of the bowel is the intussusceptum. Next slide. I have a couple of questions that we can go through at the conclusion. And I'll just kind of read the question off and then give you a second to answer to yourself. Question one, all the following are true of duodenal diverticula except A, these should be observed unless highly symptomatic. B, the most common location is the third portion of the duodenum. C, a colidoco fistula. Coli, sorry, coli-duodenal fistula should be ruled out in these patients. D, the duodenum is the most common small bowel location for diverticula. Or E, if biliary obstruction is a significant symptom, hepaticojejunostomy is indicated. So the answer is B, the most common location is within the second portion of the duodenum. Next slide. Question two, all the following are true of Crohn's disease except A, the most common site of occurrence is in the terminal ileum. B, the, there are large perianal skin tags commonly in these patients. C, surgery is curative. D, perianal fistula are usually treated conservatively. E, it is more prevalent in smokers.
Correct answer is C. Uh, unlike ulcerative colitis, surgery is not curative for Crohn's disease. Next slide. All the following are true of intussusception in adults except A, they are most commonly there is a malignant lead point. B, barium reduction should be performed for ileocolic intussusception. C, the most common scenario in adults is the ileum going into the right colon. Or D, cecal adenocarcinoma is the most common lead point in adults. Correct answer is B. So barium enema and air contrast enema reduction are not indicated for adult intussusception. The most common adult scenario is a cecal adenocarcinoma, which forms a lead point and peristalsis takes the tumor into the and ileum into the right colon, forming the intussusception. Next slide. The Absite Smackdown podcast. Visit the Smackdown at absitesmackdown.com. Question four. A 24-year-old man is undergoing laparotomy for symptomatic Crohn's disease. He has status post-ileocectomy for Crohn's disease five years ago with 15 centimeters of terminal ileum resected. He developed obstructive symptoms three months ago that have been unresponsive to medical therapy. At surgery, he has a two-centimeter stricture of the mid-ileum without any evidence of disease elsewhere in the GI tract. The best surgical option for this lesion would be A, resection with primary anastomosis, B, Heineke Mikulitz strictioplasty, C. Heineke Mikulitz strictioplasty with biopsy, D. Mechanical dilation, or E. Isoperistaltic side to side strictioplasty. So the correct answer in this scenario is A. Resection with primary anastomosis. Uh, in cases of small bowel strictures due to Crohn's disease, intestinal strictoplasties allow for effective release of, relief of obstructive symptoms without the need for resection. Strictoplasties are most useful for managing longer segments of disease with multiple strictures. Strictoplasties also have a higher rate of complications, particularly postoperative bleeding from the stricture, suture line, than do simple resection and anastomosis. For this reason, strictoplasties for Crohn's disease are best used to preserve substantial length of small bowel that would otherwise be lost due to resection. Disease limited to a short segment of the mid-ileum, as presented in this case, is an unusual pattern is an unusual pattern of Crohn's disease, and thus the diagnosis should be questioned. The possibility of a malignant stricture must be ruled out. Tissue for histologic diagnosis should be obtained. In this case, Resection with anastomosis will effectively alleviate the clinical symptoms of Crohn's disease without sacrificing a significant length of small bowel. Resection with anastomosis will also have the lowest risk for postoperative complications and will provide the tissue needed for histologic diagnosis. Next slide. A 17-year-old female who has multiple small, dark, pigmented lesions of the lips and oral mucosa presents to the ED with abdominal pain beginning 24 hours ago. It is associated with nausea and vomiting. CT scan of the abdomen demonstrates small bowel mass with concentric rings. The most likely cause of this problem is A, carcinoid tumor, B, foreign body, C, harmantomatous polyps, D, intestinal lipoma, E, inflammatory bowel disease. So the answer is C, this patient's presentation of intestinal obstruction due to intussusception as indicated by the concentric rings in the area of the obstruction. This presence of associated pigmented mucosal lesions should make one suspicious for Peutz-Jaeger's disease. In this syndrome, over 90% of patients have intestinal hematomatous polyps, 
most commonly in the jejunum. 69% of pa these patients develop small bowel obstruction due to intestaception. Small such polyps can cause this intestaception. Though other choices can be causation of obstruction, pigmented lesions are present in over 95% of patients with Peutz-Jeghers syndrome. Next slide. A 54-year-old woman presents with lower abdominal pain of acute onset. She has a rigid abdomen with peritonitis. An upright chest x-ray shows free air, so she is taken urgently to the operating room. On exploration, a large mass is identified in the distal ileum and is obviously the site of perforation. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Neuroendocrine tumor, primary adenocarcinoma, small bowel lymphoma, metastatic melanoma, or metastasis, metastatic adenocarcinoma of the stomach. The answer is C. So lymphomas are most commonly found in the ileum where there's the greatest concentration of good associated lymphoid tissue. They tend to be large, greater than five centimeters in size most oftenly. Perforation may occur in up to 25% of patients and is relatively common indication for operative exploration. Primary neuroendocrine tumors of the small bowel tend to be small, although the regional lymph node metastasis may be quite large. They tend to cause intestinal obstruction or bleeding as opposed to perforation. Primary adenocarcinomas of the small bowel most commonly occur in the proximal small intestine and are more commonly, they lead to obstruction and or bleeding as opposed to intestinal perforation. Although melanoma is one of the few malignancies that exhibit a propensity for metastasis to the small intestine, metastasis such as this typically cause bleeding and or intestaception and rarely lead to perforation. Lastly, metastatic deposits from the small bowel from a primary malignancy of the GI tract such as stomach are typically small, firm, cirrhosal tumors that lead to intestinal obstruction as opposed to perforation. Next slide. A 33-year-old obese woman who underwent bariatric Gastric bypass surgery presents with to clinic with complaints of copious amounts of fat in her loose stool, weakness, and tingling in her hands and feet. She also has abdominal pain. Her abdomen is soft with minimal tenderness in the right upper quadrant. EGD with aspiration of the afferent limb is performed demonstrating excessive proliferation of E. coli, bacteroides, and anaerobic lactobacilli. What is the best next step in management? A. Surgical exploration. B. Conversion of Roux and Y gastric bypass. C. Vitamin B12 supplementation, D, tetracycline and metoclopramide, or E, rifamixin and metronidazole. Excuse me, rifaximin. So the correct answer in this situation is E. This woman is presenting with a bacterial overgrowth in the setting of gastric bypass surgery, which is diagnosed with cultures obtained through an EGD with aspiration or by indirect means with a hydrogen breath test. Once a diagnosis is made, initial management is medical therapy with rifamixin and metronidazole for approximately 10 to 14 days. Prokinetic agents such as metoclopramide have been used without any, without any success, and tetracyclines used to be the antibiotic of choice. However, studies have demonstrated that rifamixin and metronidazole demonstrate less resistance. Vitamin B12 supplementation should be initiated if the antibiotic treatment does not resolve the symptoms. Surgical exploration as well as Roux Y revision with shorter afferent limb, about 40 centimeters, would be appropriate considerations in patients who fail conservative medical therapy. Next slide. So uh, I was going to ask for any questions. It looks like uh, student Dr. Shaw asked a question. How would you know if Crohn's flare-up involves the appendix? In lectures, we learned about the stereotypical cobblestoning in Crohn's, but that it is inside the intestines themselves. So that's correct. 
So there are imaging or findings of Crohn's on the mucosa of the intestine. However, whenever we're doing surgery and you see an acute Crohn's flare, there are some signs that you can identify on the bowel serosa itself. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about creeping fat, uh, which is indicative of Crohn's disease. But in an acutely inflamed uh, bowel, you'll see redness and irritation of the serosa of the bowel itself. Um, and in a patient who's having an acute flare with abdominal pain, um, where they wind up with a CT scan, you can also see some um, enhancement of the uh, mucosa on CT scan, with the, which indicate uh, acute colitis or enteritis in a segment of intestine. Are there any other questions? All right. Well, thank you guys. Uh, hope you guys have a good rest of the conference. Um, I'll see you in the next uh, next session. Get more AppSite content in your daily routine. Visit us on Instagram at daily.appsite.fact, on Facebook at AppSite Smackdown, or LinkedIn at AppSite Smackdown. And you can catch the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or any place you listen to your favorites. Don't forget our YouTube channel, AppSite Smackdown.